Thursday, March 7th, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight, we review and comment on the 1948 science fiction novel by Stuart J. Byrne, Prometheus II, recently republished by Armchair Fiction. This remarkable work, like so many early science fiction efforts, was set in a future time, in this case 1970, and it predicted a third world war between the United States, its traditional allies, and post-Soviet Russia. Of course, Russia did not become post-Soviet until the late 1990s, Uh, but the Russian leader in Byrne's novel seems and acts a lot like like Putin. In this story, the Russians are allied with China, and they have conquered all of Latin America. They are on the verge of swarming our southern border, but their leader, Nicholas, not Vladimir, has literally made a deal with the devil, the Daros of the subterranean world, which has escalated World War III into another dimension and brought in the forces of Agartha, the subterranean good guys, and finally the older gods, the original ancient astronauts, who arrived from hyperspace just in time to save the human race. Of course, we have a pair of young army officers and their sexy army nurse girlfriend who team up with the underground good guys and the space gods to help save America and humanity. It would have made a great Saturday morning serial, but at least it got its debut in Amazing Stories, March 1948, and we'll put it on old-time radio for you. Now, Stuart J. Byrne, 1913-2011, was a prolific science fiction writer of the Pulp Fiction era. He was also a great fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Richard Shaver. Now, Shaver's editor and collaborator, Raymond A. Palmer, published works by Burroughs, John Carter, and Shaver, The Shaver Mystery, and Byrne, The Music of the Spheres, in Amazing Stories. Palmer and Shaver in touch with Byrne. Byrne embraced the Shaver Mystery and, like writers following H.P. Lovecraft, his Cthulhu Mythos, Byrne decided to write stories based on Shaver's concept of a vast subterranean cavern world populated by the survivors of the ancient astronauts whom we mythologize as the fallen angels. These surviving troglodytes were both good and evil. The evil ones were called Daros, and the good ones Taros. Both groups communicated with surface people telepathically via their ancient ray machines. And according to Shaver, this widespread telepathic intercourse between the surface and subterranean worlds accounted for all of our supposedly supernatural contact between humans and angels and demons. This idea would be plausible if the subterranean world was in another dimension or a parallel world. But Shaver insisted that the caves were a physical reality. Because in the late 1940s, the interdimensional idea was considered impossible, and his truth-based fiction was discredited and suppressed. However, with parallel worlds now considered possible in other dimensions, Shaver is now having a revival. Now, with that in mind, we might consider Prometheus II as a good introduction to the Shaver mystery. It was for me back in 1950. I was 15 years old when I bought a used copy of the February 1948 Amazing Stories. I, I, I 
misspoke myself in the introduction uh, when I said that it was March. Actually, <laughs> March is when the Cold War started, but uh, but this came out in February. The Cold War started in, in March with the Berlin blockade, as most of you probably forgot about that. But Okay, stories featuring Burns' uh, Prometheus II. After I got Prometheus II, I began collecting all the Shaver stories I could find. Palmer had launched the mystery in Amazing back in 1944 and kept it going until 1949. So I had some catching up to do. But I collected most of the issues with the Shaver material. Burns' epic was not only my initiation into Shaver, but because much of Shaver derives directly from Blavatsky, or indirectly from Blavatsky, it was also my introduction to the occult. I say Shaver derives indirectly from Blavatsky because Shaver was primarily influenced by other writers who were influenced by Blavatsky, such as Abraham Merritt. Now, to cut to the bone on this, Shaver's Deros and Teros derive from Hindu mythology. They are the Asuras, underground entities much like our hermetic elementals. Raymond A. Palmer, Shaver's editor and fellow conspirator in the mystery, added another earlier myth to the mix, which Stuart Byrne also used, the subterranean Himalayan city of Agartha, a Hindu version of the Tibetan Shabala myth, which was created, the Hindu version, created by a French mystic, Alexander St. Eves de Alvadere, in 1910 and later revived by Ferdinand Asandowski in 1922. Now, this underground utopia had all the ancient super machines and tech magic of Shaver's Daros and Jaros. But Shaver himself avoided any mention of Agartha in his writings. But then Asandowski denied ever having read St. Eve's de Alvadere as the source of for his account of the subterranean realm. In any case, one good story deserves another. And Osendowski prophesied the conditions when Agartha's king of the world would emerge from his tavern metropolis to rule over us poor misguided surface dwellers. Jocelyn Godwin calculated it would be in the year 2029. Oh boy, we've only got a few years left for that. Just 30 years from now, if we can wait that long. More important to our story is the indication that Agartha, if it exists, must be in another dimension, just like Shaver's cavern world, because Alexander St. Eves de Alvedere visited his utopia the same way Richard Shaver visited his caves, astral projection. Another Eastern legend that Stuart Byrne brings into his story is the Seven Towers of the Yazidis. However, he gets it from a suspect source, William Seabrook's Adventures in Arabia, 1920. The Arabs who Seabrook's quoting think that the Yazidis are devil worshippers and that the towers are used as telepathic transmitting stations to radiate evil thoughts across the world. Byrne gives the towers to Agartha and uses them as stations of indoctrination. Initiation would be more appropriate that one of the young army officers in our story has to go through in order to become acclimated to functioning in both dimensions, the surface and subterranean worlds. Michael Slim Kent's experiences going through the towers are very much like a magical pathworking, and we'll do that later in the show. Before we get into summarizing the story, we should correct an omission. In the recent 
publication of Prometheus II. Armchair fiction deleted Stuart Burns' introduction. Now, the introduction is essential to understanding the story because it explains Burns' use of the Shaver mystery and assures us that what Shaver presents as fact is used by Byrne as background for his fiction. The editors of Armchair Fiction have already stated that they don't validate the Shaver mystery, even though they publish Shaver's work. So this probably explains the omission of Byrne's introduction. In any case, here from the yellowed pages of a 70-year-old copy of Amazing Stories is the author's introduction to Prometheus II. Give me a second here to get to get the the old yellow amazing stories out here. Ah, here we go. Since Mr. Shaver started Shaverism, many a science fiction scribbler, while scrabbling for new material, has gone into a brain warp and boomeranged right back to the puzzle and the challenge of Shaverism. Shaverism poses so many interesting and oft-times disturbing questions that plot after plot springs out of that inexhaustible soil. It is the humble opinion of the present writer that science fiction owes much to to Richard Shaver, and it may someday be said that science owes him much. Who knows? For those of you who have not started with us on the ground floor, this present story will cover for you the basic principles of Shaverism, chiefly in the 10th chapter, although the plot and projected ramifications of Shaverism are original, Shaver's material was borrowed from freely, owing to the fact that Mr. Shaver, both publicly and privately, to yours truly, claims that these things are true. Far from pleading guilty of plagiarism, the undersigned contends that he has tried, with respectful salutations to our good friend Shaver, to put in a plug for Shaverism by presenting it in the clearest and simplest light possible. Don't read the 10th chapter first, however. Oh, gosh, what have I done? That if there is truth to Shaverism, which there very well may be, for reasons other than the fact that Shaver is not a provocateur, then modern science, religion, history, and philosophy have deceived us. And if Shaverism is true, any author not truly connected with Shaver's sources has no business pretending his own Shaver-based story is true or based on such direct sources, because by distorting vitally important facts, he can do the world a great some great harm. Therefore, let it be clearly stated at the outset of Prometheus II that the story is pure fiction and that its chief Shaver aspects were drawn from the fertile field of Shaverism and not from Shaver's sources. Stuart J. Byrne, Lima, Peru, the introduction. And and those of you who have... Uh, seen our uh, film Beyond Lemuria, we open it up with a disclaimer that's very, very much like that, that introduction. Now to summarize the plot of Prometheus II. We first have to introduce the characters. The Prometheus himself is Captain Stephen Germain, a Native American journalist who has, yeah, he's an, he's an American Indian, who has become an OSS Special Forces officer operating behind enemy lines in South America. His best friend from childhood is Michael Slim Kent, 
an Air Force Army major, Army Air, well, this was the Army Air Force until 1947, and Lillian, their mutual girlfriend from childhood, until she finally married Germain. But Kent still loves her. And yet he is a better friend to Germaine than Lancelot was to Arthur, and so the plot does not thicken in that direction. Lillian becomes an army nurse so she can follow her boys to war, and she ends up in the thick of it. Now, as the story opens, Captain Germain, disguised as a local Indian, is leading a donkey through the Bolivian jungle on his way to infiltrate a Russian research center where a leftover Nazi mad scientist, Dr. Borg, is still perfecting a serum that turns Russian soldiers into raging berserkers, virtually immune to pain. The GIs call them hopheads. Germain is captured and turned over to the insidious Dr. Borg as an experimental subject. At this point, the Russian dictator Nicholas arrives to inspect the facility and Borg's work. South America has almost fallen under Russian control, and the invasion of North America is being planned and prepared. Nicholas is familiar with Germain's pre-war journalistic efforts and his editorials criticizing the Russian tyrant. He approves of Borg's plan to surgically enhance Germain's brain power, thus creating an intellectual superman whom they can control as a weapon. Now, this backfires on them, and Germain becomes an aggressive telepath who contacts American forces by telepathy. His contact just happens to be his pal, Slim Kent, and they lay on an airborne commando raid targeting the research facility. Well, the raid fails. Lillian, who goes along with the raiders, is captured and almost raped by Nicholas, who has to settle for lecturing her on American feminism. Germain is teleported to Agartha, where he meets the king of the world, and they prepare for the coming interdimensional conflict. Back in Bolivia, Nicholas offers Lillian to the Daros to sweeten his deal with them, and they soon have her dancing on their feasting table down in the caverns. However, her husband is monitoring all this telepathically, and the first ghoul to lay hands on her quickly falls on his sword. Well, this doesn't deter the Darrows from their invasion of the surface world. Major Slim Cat has arrived in Agartha, that's the Himalayan caverns under the Himalayas, and will become Stephen Germain's ambassador to Chicago, which is now the U.S. capital. But first, he must undergo his Agartha initiation. He must journey through the Seven Towers, and so shall we. Now, well, those of you who were with us last week, know we did the first tower last week. We're going to do it again, though. Uh, so, chapter 10. This is the one that, that, that Stuart Burton didn't want us to read <laughs> until we read the rest, the rest. That's why I summarized the rest of the novel first. As he looked at them, he knew that his purpose in this strange place was to climb these towers one by one, although, again, he knew not why. He walked forward and approached the first massive structure that stood at the base of a mighty mountain. Kent stepped through his portals into the into vastness. The interior of the tower was like the interior of the mountains, nay, of the very world. 
or did he see infinity itself stretch out before him? There was something that strangely distorted his vision as he walked into the tower and across its sagging floor. He seemed to grow smaller. The floor seemed to curve downward in a deep bowl of foggy night. It was an exceedingly unpleasant sensation. But he pushed onward, driven by an irresistible force. Faster he walked, yet smaller he grew, and further the distance seemed. Also, shrouds of fog darkened his mind, and he fought against it. He was so tiny now that the walls of the tower were lost to his sight. He walked as though through eternity into the subcosmos. After walking, it seemed like forever, he came to what he knew was his immediate destination. There on the floor, at the bottom of the bowl, not ten feet from him, was a strange little man who sat on a red and yellow carpet smoking a water pipe. But he was only an inch high, but as Kent approached him, each step he himself grew smaller, until when he at last stood next to the man, he was no taller than he. The man was old. His nose was red. His eyes faded blue. He wore the costume of a fool, a jester, complete with curled-up shoe toes and bells. Who are you, he said to this man. The other jingled his bells and said, I am man. Well, so am I, man, retorted Kent, but oh, ho, 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 laughed the jester. His bells uh, clanging cheaply and dissonantly. But you thought you were a god, a superior being whose science and wisdom encompassed all things knowable. There could be nothing new under the sun for you because you could always reduce the unknown to conform to what you could understand. This method of self-blinding you called science. The fool sprang to his feet, did a clumsy somersault, and made a clumsier curtsy. But only this you really are, and only because you are so vain in what you consider to be your worldly knowledge, in order to see yourself face to face as you truly are, you had to grow smaller, to the size that is unimaginably small. Man, for all his vanity, is a cheap, self-deceived, self-blinded fool. Kent grew angry. Pride leaped within him, and he lunged at this irritating jack-in-the-box. But the jack sprang out of the box and was suddenly nowhere to be seen. Kent then turned around to see a swampland stretching out behind him. He knew it was mental trickery, but he was forced to appreciate its reality to his mortal senses. There on the shore before him sat a huge, stupid-looking frog. I am the wisest of all creatures in the universe. The universe, of course, is the swamp. And I have lived here for three score years and ten. I know every pebble in it, every clump of rushes, every rotten log, and every turtle and fly. There is, therefore, nothing more to know, and since I possess all knowledge, I am the greatest of all living creatures. There is no greater perfection. Just then, a very incongruous thing occurred. Kent saw a fleet of four-motored bombers and miniatures sail right through the frog. They came out of nothingness and went off into it. Immediately, he was moved to call the frog's bluff. He smiled proudly. But what about four-motored bombers and all the modern technology of them and their electronic controls? What do you know of that old frog who thinks he is so great? Frog, said the frog, as unperturbed as a mountain. 
since I know all things already, I cannot accept the possibility of the existence of things outside of the sphere of that knowledge. What you mentioned is impossible. It cannot be. In fact, it angers me to hear such an idea even expressed. The thought is entirely revolting. You should be ostracized for not accepting present concepts as they are. The frog in the swamp then disappeared, and Kent found himself surrounded by a myriad of gestures, jangling their bells and leering at him. Impossible, impossible, they chanted in a mad discordant song. It cannot be. Why can't it be? Because it wasn't before. So therefore, it is impossible, 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 and impossible, they roared until Kent had to hold his ears. There came a clap of thunder, a blinding flash of lightning, and Kent staggered back. Towering mightily above him was a giant jester who stared angrily down at him, legs spread apart, arms akimbo. When he spoke, his voice rang hollowly through the tower, as though it were the voice of death inside a vast tomb. Man, man, when will you ever know that while you sit like a self-satisfied frog in your slough of ignorance, that there are things so much vaster than you passing around your head that they shrivel you to the insignificance of dust. Wake up. Open those eyes which you yourself have willfully shut. Your only chance for gaining any stature is an upward climb to greater knowledge. So climb, man, climb. Before it can appear spiral staircase. He ran to it readily because he wanted nothing more than to be out of this place. He ran up the stairs and as he climbed them, they grew larger, as did he, until it seemed undignified for him to run. And by the time he came to the exit on the roof tower, he walked with the calmness of a neophyte in good and godliness. He was leaving all of man's blinding ignorance below in the pit of vanity. He had graciously opened his mind to truth, and he knew somehow that the beginning of great truths and revelations would be found in the second tower. He came through the tower's roof and looked over at the parapet at the mist of the world below, and he could see nothing. Somehow he felt elevated spiritually, and he took it as a sign of good that he could no longer see the mists that he had left behind. He crossed a perilously narrow bridge and passed between two massive pillars to the second tower. This place was larger than the first, but instead of making him feel smaller, it had the opposite effect. As he wandered across its floor, he felt it rise convexly, and as he rose with it, he seemed to grow still more. The illumination here was not so dim. It was a bluish light, but brighter than before, and his vision was sharper, his step more sure. He walked on with increasing exhilaration and confidence. At the top of the vast convex mound that was the floor, he saw another man, a man who merely stood quietly waiting for his approach as though he had nothing better in the world to do. But this man was not ridiculous. Vanishing jack-in-the-box with fool's bells around his neck, he was, a, he was large, larger than Kent. Yet as Kent stepped up close to him, 
Kent grew sufficiently to match the other's stature. This was the same type of optical illusion as before, but in reverse. The man was vigorous-looking, strong, healthy, cool, and calm. He had the perfect, powerful symmetry of a god. His head was quite large, as were his age-wise eyes. For although he appeared to enjoy an undying youth, one could measure his centuries of life by the aura of wisdom which he wore. His clothing was distinctly of the future. An emblazoned star of precious stones rested in the massive square of, on the massive square of his chest, underneath a crystal clear plastic blouse, which was so pliable that it rippled like water with his slightest motion. He wore metallic woven trunks and a simple belt of gold, and on his feet were sandals laced to the knees, and his short cropped hair was blonde. Who are you, said Kent. I am man, replied the other. He raised his hand as Kent began to form a further question, for he read the thought in his mind. I am man after his awakening from ignorance, superstition, fear, and vanity. I am man advanced 100,000 years by the forces of wisdom. Let me show you how I came to be. It all follows laws of natural development, and since you are no longer blinded by the ignorance which is vanity, and since your mind is open to the possibility of the truth, you will not deny that it can be so. Behold, Kent looked where the man's finger pointed, and he saw woven in the bluish air of the vast place the three-dimensional tapestry of things to come, or so it seemed. He saw the years of man pass in a massive kaleidoscope. Scenes of war and destruction, peace and social integration. However, this did not appear to be precisely the history of the nations of Earth, as he knew them. It seemed to be figurative history of man in a general sense, or as of man evolved somewhere else, not necessarily on Earth. He saw unimaginable progress toward godliness, while his strange guide, our host, explained, once man evolves, wherever it may be in the universe or in the subcosmos or the supercosmos, he spends usually a quarter of a million years or so as a purely physical creature, depending on various factors which are the majority, in the majority influenced by the radiations of the particular sun under which he lives. For all his technical progress, he remains a mere bundle of ganglion nerve cells responding to stimuli like a glorified vegetable. And each day of his wakeful life, he devotes to the pursuit of the prime physical necessities, food, clothing, and shelter. And his diet and habits of health and his ignorance in regard to medical science contribute to a low level of life expectancy, even in spite of, benefit, even in spite of beneficial solar radiations. Wisdom is the first step toward peace, security, physical emancipation, and the next phase of man's development. But wisdom cannot be taught or learned. It is acquired through years of experience. It can be written down in books. But who can capture its true significance but another wise man? Therefore, while man's individual lifespan is short, the wise men, and wise men are too few and too aged, to ever assert themselves effectively, ignorance continues to govern man's actions, and he passes inevitably through a period of self-destruction. Then one day he learns how to take better care of himself. He purifies his diet. Subtracting, insol subtracting insoluble fats and salts, and he 
advances in medical science, and he stops using metallic substances and other non-organic materials as medicine and learns how to employ specialized human cells and natural processes in order to achieve health. If some of the sun's radiations are unhelpful, he shuts them out, likewise allowing only the beneficial ones to reach him. As a result, he ceases to age. But as age is relative to size, growth must gradually continue with continuing youth. It is like mass and inertia. Small things have small age. You have said that man's years are three score and ten, yet the earth's age can be measured in millions of years. It is proportionately larger. Growth secession in man is the announcement of his, of his mortality. He will surely die if he stops growing. For when growth stops, youth is gone. Therefore, immortal man must grow. He becomes gigantic, like a god, and he must seek new worlds in which to live. The stars of space exist in endless number. They are suns, like your own or better. And about them revolve unnumbered worlds, many of them better than Earth. With increased life comes the stabilization of wisdom and its domination of ignorance. Thus man ceases to destroy himself. He puts the machine to work to produce his prime necessities and thus frees himself from physical work. He is ready to enter the mental phase of his evolution. He becomes a mentalist, magnifying his findings with thought-projecting machines, dream-making machines, and mental conditioner machines. He can read his fellow's thoughts so that all hypocrisy and deceit must vanish. So he progresses on the road toward godliness. He is great and powerful in stature. He is wise and endless in years. He can traverse the void of space to any star he pleases. He possesses the knowledge of life and death, and he can even create life out of inert matter. In short, man has become a god, and this, in fact, is his goal. By this time, Kent was looking upon a marvelous machine world that created miracles that to his own senses were godly doings. He was looking upon the very life of the gods beyond words to describe. His spirit filled with joyous hope for man's future. Suddenly the pictures vanished. Much to his regret, you have seen the ramifications of truth-seeking, the partial extension, the possibility of man's progress. Now you must pass on to specific truths and learn something of fact which has already come to pass in your own world. Kent felt himself rising in the air. He rose swiftly, supported by an invisible force. And then he rose, and he also grew. Size was infinite, and time was eternal, he thought. A great exhilaration filled his being. In the first tower, he had been cleansed of ignorance and vanity. In the second tower, he had been treated to the wine of knowledge, improved by wisdom's aging. He emerged on the roof of the second tower and unhesitatingly crossed the bridge to the third tower. This was the largest tower he had seen. It was so vast that he could not see its further wall. And he knew at once, by the aspect of the place, that here was proportionately far more to be learned. He walked upon a vast desert in a greenish-yellow light. Some giant hand had written on the sands before him, the sands of time. 
His footprints, as he progressed, left a lonely track behind him. But this desert was by no means empty. He walked through the most gigantic wax museum that he had ever seen. Statues of men, women, horses, buildings, wagons, ships, and an endless variety of other things marched away on either side of his path to far horizons. No matter how far he walked, he found himself surrounded by this beautiful paralyzed pageant. At even intervals, he passed what seemed to be a sort of marker stone, giving that one era said, therefore, 1800. He stopped and looked back a few paces at some of the marvelous statues and structures he had passed. Not far back, he saw unmistakable signs of the War of 1812. And in the, 19, in the 19th century section, and more than halfway back, he had seen the he had seen Confederate soldiers of the Civil War. He knew that his eyes were being treated to a greater historical pageant than most men had ever dreamed of. He was literally walking down the halls of history in awed silence and with reverent steps. He walked slowly onward. When he looked back at the marker stone, he read the word because. He was going backward through history, where he recognized now certain outstanding characters and events of the 18th century, 1700 to 1800. He saw the French Revolution. He even came upon the statue of Voltaire, hard at work by candlelight. And he came upon Washington and saw the Battle of Independence. He saw the faces of suffering and idealism and hope. And there was also James Watt at work on his steam engine. He wanted to pause, especially before the statues of Catherine the Great, Frederick, Frederick the Great, and Maria Theresa, which were all exquisitely perfect, complete with real jewelry, but some mysterious force drove him rapidly onward. And before he knew it, he passed another marker, therefore 1700. And on its reverse side, he saw again the word, because. <coughs> Here he rushed English history, and out of the corner of his eye, he caught certain early scientists doing things. He walked through the middle of hellish scenes from the Thirty Years' War, past the 1600 marker, and recognized the pirates under Pizarro in their conquest of Peru. Between each marker was such a world of events portrayed that he could have spent a year in each section without regret. Yet something pushed him onward, faster and faster, as though all this did not matter as much as what was yet to come. And so he passed yet Gutenberg at his printing press and Columbus on board his ship, and he saw the fall of Constantinople, the towering castles of feudal times, the Crusades. Faster and faster he went, through the decline of the Roman Empire into its heyday, and even the life of Christ flitted by him in a moment to spare. Now the marker stones went up in number, therefore 200 B.C., 300 B.C., 400 B.C. He caught brief glimpses of Greek, Roman, and Egyptian wars, passing almost by whole millenniums of time across the endless sands. He saw the pyramids and the sphinx, and their building by a strange and beautiful non-Egyptian people, Moses and the Exodus from Egypt, and even the Tower of Babel. 
But now something new occurred. The marker stones appeared less well taken care of and more broken down, and the stones and scenes on either side of his path were not uh, well arranged anymore, and some had fallen over into the dust, and some lay half buried and unrecognizable. The causes and the therefores were getting confused and hard to find. He heard the hollow sounds of temple pillars crashing ponderously to the ground. The ground itself trembled and he felt apprehensive. Were the sands of time running out? Where did they lead from here? If he remembered correctly, he would soon come and he heard it, the roar of the waters. It was the great flood of ancient times. He stopped uncertain, willing to go forward, but he was pushed forward. He topped a low hill to look out upon the angry waters of the diluvium itself. The surf below was washing the nondescript ruins of a mighty city. Everything in that city had been reduced to ghastly rubble. And on the shore, amidst the ruins, sat a man in a robe and sandals, who had a white beard and a balding head. He looked up at Kent and beckoned to him, as though he had been waiting for him for some time. Look at this chart, he said as Kent approached, and he held up a large scroll on which it seemed he had been working. Kent looked at it and saw a long black line which was labeled 800,000 years. Toward the right end of the line, he saw a small vertical line followed by the word words 10,000 years, modern man's written history. Eight hundred thousand years, exclaimed the old man. His sad eyes looked at Kent reproachfully. For eight hundred thousand years, Earth has been completely inhabitable by human beings such as ourselves. Your written history covers hardly more than one percent of that time. Yet you pride yourself in knowing so very much about everything. How far does your knowledge reach beyond the flood? If it reaches at all, the most important features are cast aside in parables. What are these important features, queried Kent? The man's eyes burned with enthusiasm. The giants walked the earth, he said. They were God-men, those giants. Come across the flood with me, and I shall show them to you. On the shore nearby was a boat with oars. Kent knew he was to cross the waters in this skiff. So he stepped toward it without hesitation. The old man followed, like the boatman on the river sticks. And he thought how true it was that man knew so little after all concerning ancient times. A lot could have happened and had been deeply buried in the sands of time, even hundreds of thousands of years before the Sphinx was even thought of. For time was infinite with the cosmos, and all was relative. And in the past, all things could have happened, which will yet occur in the future. And when the skiff had worked its way well out upon the waters to a point where no land was in sight, Kent remarked about, about it to the boatman. No land, said he. Land ho, land ho. And in that instant, Ken saw land in two directions. He saw land rising up from beneath the ocean's waves. Great tides were thrown back as two continental land masses arose from the depths, one ahead and one behind. Behind us lies Atlantis, said the boatman, nudging resolutely at his oars. Ahead lies Lemuria. 
These were ancient land masses whose sinking raised the North American continent out of the water. Hence the legend of the flood in all countries and among all races of people, for these continents were largely the home of terrestrial man. And when they got to the shore of Lemuria, they found it already clad in the dense verdure which belonged to a long-gone prehistoric era. In those vast post-carboniferous jungles roamed terrible and monstrous beasts. This period surely belonged to one beyond the ken of human knowledge, immeasurably lost in the past, thought Ken. You are no longer going backward in history, explained the boatman, walking up to him on the shore. Here you see it rapidly, but in chronological order. Behold, he said, pointing to the sky. Kent looked up and saw, to his astonishment, an uncountable number of very beautiful vessels. They looked like mighty submarines. At first, they were only tiny specks in the sky. Then soon they appeared to be like toy models. And then... Uh, very quickly, however, he saw them sweep majestically overhead in gigantic mile-long proportion. At this time, explained Kent's guide, Earth's indigenous humans were cave people dwelling in animal darkness. These advanced specimens of man came among them like gods. They had eons of time to develop in another part of the universe until they became immortally wise and made immortally wise men. But their own son had grown old and had begun to throw out too many rays which were detrimental to life. And so they were forced to search for a new world in another solar system, far from their ancient home. And this was the secret of their immortality, basically, for they knew that creation surged on tides of disintegration and integration, destruction of matter and construction of matter. Whenever in one part of the universe the disintegration with its harmful radiations was occurring, in still another part an equal and opposite integration with its accompanying beneficial radiations was occurring. And so they learned to follow the beneficial tides, and uh, and never subject themselves to the dis- disintegrant forces of nature. They traversed the terrible voids of interstellar of the interstellar abyss at speeds surpassing that of light itself. And here they have found, at least momentarily, a new home. <clears throat> In those ancient days on Earth, the sun's rays were highly beneficial, and plant life was as irrepressible as animal life. Plant and animal life grew to great sizes and lived to a great age. It was home for these godmen of old because of their imagination, because of their, their immigration to earth, your modern earth men still cherish legends of ancient gods such as Zeus, Thor, and Wotan with their might and their thunderbolts. Such supermen existed, as you see before you. Behold their progress. Kent saw with an, ex- with an accelerated historical perspective how these giant, beautiful beings of another time rapidly created out of Earth's riotous jungles a heavenly paradise. Great glistening cities were built in ages beyond reckoning before the flood. These people prepared their diet 
until they were pure and positively beneficial, extracting all sources of poisoning or insoluble residue. Such detrimental radiations as reached them from outer space, they could shield out of their great cities by means of electrical force fields. They lived and loved generously, wisely, without deceit or waste or evasion. They grew as eternally as they lived, and their godlike machines, which were but complicated extensions of their marvelous intellects, developed in size as necessity demanded. The machines were as eternal as their makers. However, said Kenskine, there came a time when three harmful factors had to be anticipated, and this brought about a great change. One factor was the sun. It was beginning to become detrimental, like that previous sun they had left in ages past. And some felt that they would have to leave this otherwise beautiful world and seek again a home in space on another far-flung world. But others... There were who did not wish to enter into the Long Star Road again. Instead, they proposed building a great empire underneath the ground, away from the sun's powerful detrimental rays, which now required too much force field energy to shield up below the Earth's surface, and they could filter in only the good rays and supply a number of their own through artificial means. Their great disintegrator beams, which could melt mountains, could easily carve out vast caverns for them, and their integrator beams could then solidify the walls of these caverns until they were harder than steel and hundreds of feet thick. And even earthquakes and, oceans, and the ocean's weight were no match for such walls. A second factor which influenced them to begin the construction of such caverns was the advent in earthly skies of enemy races of supermen. Great wars ensued. And from these events, you have derived the legend of the Battle of the Titans. Kent gazed in awe at the spectacle of these ancient wars. He saw these great men hurl bolts of death from their, uh, from their cities and ships, half across the world, shattering mountains and blasting cities out of existence. So the first godlike settlers of Earth prepared themselves an underground home, and their caverns eventually extended to most of Earth's then extant continents. But there came a third factor, geological changes. Lemuria and Atlantis were to sink, and the American continent was to rise from the depths of the ocean. And this, and the factor of continuing growth, finally led them to travel out upon the star road after all. Kent, to his sorrow, saw them depart in their thousands of great ships, leaving Earth to its upheavals and poisoning sun, which now brought early death to ordinary men and unprotected plants and animals. No more would the god life flourish here, only stunted and short-lived life hereafter would be the, which would be a farce, pointless because it was so temporary. It begins another phase of knowledge which you must absorb, explained the guide. So now go forth to the fourth tower. A great wind came and caught Kent, as in a cyclone vortex. The floods swept over the land of Lemuria, and beneath him he shot upward. And as though in a dream, he emerged and saw before him the fourth tower. 
This tower was darker and more forbidding in aspect, which caused Kent to hesitate. But again, something drove him forward. He passed beneath great monolithic stones as though into a cavern. Several great bats flew out above his head. He felt as though he were underneath the ground. Giant rocks, like small mountains, lay sidewise in the ground. And, and he walked among them in the semi-darkness like a Lilliputian. This appeared to him to be a lonely place to which men should not come, akin to that land of shadows depicted in Grecian legends as the place of departed souls. Soon there appeared before him, coming toward him on the shadowed path between the giant rocks, a man in a black robe. And as the man drew nearer, Kent saw that he was sightless. His vacantly staring eyes were almost pure white like scar tissue. Before you travel onward, said this man in a sepulchral tone, in a, a sepulchral tone, you must learn what I shall tell you now. He, meant, he motioned for Kent to sit down on a boulder nearby, just as though he could see without eyes, Kent sat down. Neophytes who enter the fourth tower, said the blind man, have been purged of vanity and are thus seekers of the truth. They also have faith in the God destiny of man, and they have been given knowledge of the great elder race of the ancient godlike beings who once lived on earth and made it a paradise. Beings who, wherever they may be, living their heavenly lives today are referred to us as the elder gods. We do not worship these beings, but they serve as a pattern for that ideal perfection which man does personify as the one God. It is, their, it is toward this state that man must ever gravitate because it is the fundamental law. You have been shown how the elder race left the earth, but now you must be told that there were certain less perfect members of that race who stayed behind, probably because they had quarreled openly with their superiors and were thus condemned to remain. These were, in fact, the fallen angels of legendary fame, and they did go into the pit, which consisted of the caverns beneath the earth, that of the elder race, that, that, that the elder race had left behind. For here were all the great machines that were still in fit condition to support them practically as they had the godlike race which had made them. But a great degeneracy crept upon them. And as your own Bible says, they looked upon the daughters of men, and that is, they married into the ordinary race of indigenous earthmen, thereby degenerating further. And it was not long after this that the great geological change occurred. Earth's axis slipped from the perpendicular, and the jolt sank Atlantis and Lemuria. Millions of men and animals were destroyed. But some things survived to live in a very much poisoned world, where now, due to Earth's tipped axis, there was no eternal spring of paradise, and the menacing rainbow rode the skies. The first appearance of the rainbow signified that the sun's carbon coat was gone, and now that poisoning herb, orb, the poisoning orb burned metals, casting out the deceiving, beautiful spectrum of death. 
Then truly were man's years only threescore and ten. He had degenerated to a studded dwarf who lived before. He could find time to learn to think. But some there were who entered the ancient caverns of the elder race through secret portals. And this, in fact, is, this is a fact which brought about the next most important phase of man's history. At first, it was a relatively simple matter for them to run the great machines. The machines used water as fuel, breaking water into hydrogen and oxygen, and thence operating atomically, using hydrogen as the end fuel. The fuel was always as limitless as the energy that these machines could release. They bathed the cavern people in beneficial stimulant rays and gave them a sort of synthetic immortality. But the ancient legend of hell and the belief in the forces of evil living in the pit beneath the earth owe their origin to the failure of these very ancient machines. Perfect as they were, if not properly maintained, they would deteriorate through the ages. The deterioration came in the form of accumulated radioactive deposits in certain of them, especially those that perform telepathic and mental functions. The constant exposure to this type of poisoning created the Daros, or devils. A Dero is a detrimental robot. His thought may start out as constructively, but due to a negative twist in his thinking caused by a detrimental energy radiation from the, these machines, the end result is destructive thought. So whereas the surface man usually spends his time in constructive pursuits, at least individually, the cave Darrow spends his time just as busily and energetically in destructive or detrimental pursuits. Now, to become a Darrow was not always the fate of the cavern people. There were some who had machines which, due to various special circumstances, were not as heavily laden with radioactive deposits. These people early identified the true Darrows as enemies and succeeded in sealing themselves off in various places to live their own lives. These are called the tarot, or beneficial robots, people who are still capable of dedicating their energies to constructive purposes. The surface man owes, owes the tarot much, but unfortunately the tarot are fewer in number by far than the Darrow. And since those ancient times when the first mech or machine began to break down and emit detrimental energy, the Darrow has governed the affairs of men. The blind man pointed like a grim specter to a great mountainous rock nearby, which towered upward into formidable darkness. This way you must go, he said, to learn how the Darrow has influenced man from the dawn of your written history. Go. Kent rose silently to his feet and turned resolutely toward the great rock. There he saw a stairway cut in the stone, and it seemed to be incredibly ancient. He felt as he started to climb it like Moses ascending Sinai. He ascended into the darkness and did not sense the old exhilaration. Rather, he felt the strengths given to him in the other towers would be needed to face what was to come. He emerged from the fourth tower and looked amazed at the fifth. It loomed above him like that secret entrance to hell that Dante claims to have discovered. Nothing could have been as uninviting 
as the cavernous maw which seemed to yearn for his very soul. Yet he stepped across the tattered bridge which led to it, and he entered the fifth tower. When he entered, he knew that that he was in a place that was a facsimile of the pit or of the Darrow Caverns beneath the surface of the earth. Darkness more profound than that which he had encountered in the previous tower now confronted him. An uneven pathway led crookedly among fallen monolithic stones, and a ponderous ceiling arched low over his head like gathering clouds of doom. He sensed the terrible weight of miles of earth upon these rocks, and here, out of some deeper darkness before him, emerged the breath of evil. His spirit cringed within him out of revulsion more than fear, but still he was made by an unseen force to tread onward. As he advanced into the more cavernous darkness, his footsteps rang unaccountably, echoing back at him like a cacophony of demon laughter. Suddenly, a black, gigantic shadow loomed up out of the nothingness, and the foul stench of a sweating beast filled his nostrils. The gigantic face that looked upon him was that of Satan. No man could look upon that evil countenance and retain his soul, or so it seemed to Kent. He cried out in mortal terror, while the vast shadow demon before him shook the cavern with triumphant laughter. Satan pointed a finger at him, while his fiery eyes glared greedily, and Kent felt a coldness envelop him, accompanied by an imploding blackness. Then suddenly he felt as though some hand had saved him, and he steadied himself. The vision of Satan vanished. In his mind, he sensed a calm voice saying, Even we do not tread the path on which you walk, but we shall guide and protect you as you advance to look upon that which surface men refer to as hell. And you shall see that no terrifying imaginings of man can do justice to this place. Advance. Kent walked onward, but only because he was forced to. In spite of the protection that he had been offered, he knew that he was in a place of some real danger. (laughs) The image of Satan, continued the voice of his protector, was created out of the imagination of a clever Darrow. He transmitted this thought into a telog or telepathic projector and augmenting the image thousands of times by means of the machine, he directed it into your minds. Such rays can be directed upwards toward the surface world and can cause any, many a man to go insane, shrieking that he has been tormented by voices and monstrous images. Your insane asylums contain many such Darrow victims who still continue to be tormented. (laughs) From ancient times, when the Egyptians were first settling in the Nile Valley, such rays of torment have been directed at surface men. Sometimes such dreams and visions have been made to materialize by means of the telosolidograph machine, which forms three-dimensional opaque images. 
thus began spiritualism, which has been rightly termed by clergymen as demonism. For demons, or darrow, are the masters of spiritualism, by means of which the surface man may be misguided. Through this means, the next step was achieved. If the surface subject was willing to make certain concessions, he would be given certain powers, though means of the teleportation through means of the teleportation apparatus, surface beings could be, and still can be, transported to hell. Some famous witches have permitted themselves to be used in hell in return for the devil's favors on the surface world. We shall show you an actual case. Suddenly Kent stood in a small cavern where he could look out upon a vast banquet hall and not be seen himself. A nondescript conglomeration of human beings dressed in medieval clothing and even ancient Roman costumes reveled about a feast table, drinking and carousing in the fullest tradition of ancient imperial splendor. But there were some features of this banquet that had never been witnessed upon the surface of the earth. For among other horrors, Kent saw a roasted girl served on a giant silver platter to cannibals. He wanted a wretch to turn away, but he was forced to see more. All about these revelers at the table were dancing girls, most of them nude, who danced voluptuously to music which was designed to excite the erotic senses. There were also invisible vibrations in that room which excited these senses to an unimaginable extent. When men at the table grew tired of the illicit food and drink, wine reddened by human blood, they would avail themselves of a dancing girl quite oblivious to the rest of the crowd. These girls, wearing expressions of delight, suffered the tortures of hell because they had been they had to give themselves lest they be subjected to greater tortures. There was one among them, however, whose soul was not torment tortured. She wore nothing but a daffarous black veil, which swirled like a dark nebula about her too voluptuous form as she danced. Hers was a genuine pleasure, and she yielded her special charms to the more privileged of the feasters. But this this horror of hell was so deliberately lewd that Kent refused to look. He fought the controls which had been placed upon him and closed his eyes. We're sorry, came the voice of his protector, but we have... But we have spared you really from worse scenes. Look now and you'll see something else. Kent looked hesitantly and he was surprised to be looking at the same lewd woman who had cavorted with the men and at the banquet, now dressed like a respectable Puritan woman, walking down a village street sometime back in the 17th century. Remember Salem, gave a voice suggestively, and thus he knew that he was looking upon a witch, and he realized that his own sympathy for those Salem women while reading history because of their handling by superstitious and ignorant townspeople had in some cases been wasted. The woman walked with an air of chasteness and passing villagers greeted her with respect, for she was the wife of one of the leading citizens. <coughs> but when no one was, was near, her expression turned to one of evil triumph. This night she would get rid of an enemy who knew too much. And when she got home, she took out an old, took out of an old trunk a remarkable doll. It looked very much like the village preacher who had passed her on the way home. This 
she put some finishing touches to, and when night came, she made some signs over it, and then she thrust a needle directly through its heart. Kent then saw Darrow in one of the caves. He saw the demon looking into the viewing screen. He saw the image of the Puritan woman thrusting the pin into the doll. Katie communicates well, said the Darrow to, to one of his companions. She desires the preacher to die of, a heart, of heart trouble. I wish they'd think up something new, but it's always heart trouble. Oh, well, as long as, uh, as, long as the stupid fools cannot divine the actual causes, it matters not. Katie's, uh, Katie is great sport at the feasts. It is always great to find, to get a willing dancer rather than have to, have to make robots out of these girls. And as long as Katie remains young and beautiful and willing, uh, why should we not join in her fun on the surface? Sure, let's kill the old, perhaps. Always, people always expect preachers to, to, to die prematurely, being so close to heaven. They think it's respectable. Give him a jolt. Kent uh, then saw a bedroom where the preacher slept, and the man's eyes opened in an expression of pain and suffering. He suddenly stiffened in death. So it was, said the voice of Kent's protector, that the Darrows gave out nefarious assistance to those who would cooperate with them and keep a silent tongue in their heads. This intercourse between surface people and cavern people has been known variously as witchcraft, demonism, spiritualism, voodooism, clairvoyance, leisure domain, and black magic. But the Darrow of the Caves, let me interject into this that uh, that that, uh, that if we if we put Shaver's caves and his Darrow's in another dimension, then this then this this actually would work in another dimension. That then, then but but if if you think that they're you know they're actually physically down there, uh, that's not going to work. Um, okay. But the Darrow of the cave has made even a mockery of religion, inspiring directly the cruelties of the Spanish Inquisition and the ancient Christian persecutions under the Romans. In every walk of life, they have turned man from the paths of construction. Through the perpetuation of dogma and superstition, they have deterred man in his due progress. Why is this? Because in the first place, the Dero wants nothing to do with our unfiltered sunlight. It would kill him quickly. He looks upon his cavern world as his salvation. But in the second place, he is suspicious of surface man's progress. He fears that if he progresses far enough, he may discover the, that he, we may discover the Darrow and find some way to drive him out of his caverns. For this reason, the Darrow take a direct hand in deterring man. Just what kind of struggle is going on in modern times, you must learn quickly. It's because the struggle is rapidly approaching a dreaded climax. Come. Kent found a path in the dark cavern, which led pitilessly upward, and he climbed gladly. The Sixth Tower. When Kent climbed out on the roof of the Fifth Tower, he looked at the, at the Sixth. He thought for a moment that he was looking at the Empire State Building, so neat and modern did it look. This place he entered much more confidently. Once inside, he saw a welcome blue sky filled with aerial commerce. 
and before him stretched Chicago, 1970, as familiar to him as ham and eggs. He stood there for a long time contemplating the roaring rush of modern life that was Chicago. He thought of man's great forward strides in science, and he wondered how the Dero could fight modern man and of how it would be to stuff a couple of atomic bombs down their throats. Then he was suddenly confronted with a vision of Darrow's in a cavern that he somehow knew was underneath Chicago. There were about a dozen Darrow's seated around an ancient stone table, all of whom were engaged in earnest conversation. Modern man knows very much about science, said one of them. He has already discovered atomic integration and disintegration. He has produced in his laboratories the phenomenon of transference, whereby matter becomes energy. The outstanding feature is that he is smart, that circus man is smart, commented another Darrow. We fools down here can only rely on our great asset, the ancient mech. And with the mech, we can still wipe out the surface man world civilization. But we have actually slipped behind the surface man's progress in technical knowledge and skill. I believe there are some among them who might be able uh, to reproduce at least at least crudely one of the ancient machines if they were allowed to examine it. Well, we've succeeded so far in tripping them up by means of the, uh, the pleasure techniques remarked another. The production of jukeboxes and motion pictures of the erotic and the senseless type, as well as the idiotic radio programs and insane jingle-jangle of their songs, has all reached a new peak, either in spite of or because of the war. The, the fools even bring jukeboxes and, and the silliest type of films into their army camps so that they can take men's minds off the war. What imbeciles. If they only realized that it is thinking that we fear the most. But they cooperate beautifully. They all flock to anything that can nullify thought, to any means of killing time, so that original thinking will not occur. It seems to me to be a very good safeguard for us, this consistent stupidity of man. Ah, but Nicholas I of Russia will soon conquer even America, said another Duro. And under his rule, men may actually have time to think because he prides himself on his intellectuality and he would ban anything but serious and educational pictures, even though they may be prepared by the state and hence quite biased. Jukeboxes he would junk, and that has been one of his most successful instruments for sustaining zoot-suitism and jitterbugging. Let's update that to sexual sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> Nicholas Mann, Nicholas's man, Swenga, has made a stupid treaty offering us all the slaves and food we want. Ha! As if we couldn't take them anyway. Last week, we raked, raked in over 100 Chicago beauties, which the Bureau of Missing Persons obligingly turned into cases under investigation. But they always give up, and they never get wise. And if they do get wise, all we have to do is talk to them and give them a few wild dreams, and the law again obliges us by putting such people into insane asylums. The more they know and try to tell, the more solitary becomes their confinement. Our absolute guarantee of safety is that 
is that fatal vanity of theirs, which leads them to believe that anything which they themselves can't think or invent is entirely impossible. And that, if anybody believes otherwise, he belongs in an insane asylum. I tell you, it's wonderful. But we must strike at Nicholas's empire, said the first general who had spoken. Now is the time, while Agartha is still wise unprepared. And suddenly the vision vanished from Kent's view, and he um, was replaced again by the previous vista of bustling Chicago. And so it is, said the invisible guide to Kent, surface men today would place a man in an insane asylum if he spoke openly of these things. That is why not much progress has been made toward protecting man from the evil influences of the Darrow. As you heard one of them say, their greatest protection is man's own incredulity. It is that vanity which perpetuates ignorance. If what I am saying were written down for common men to read, they would laugh at it in the ignorance which is vanity, not knowing that it is the ghastly truth, and that the Duro rubbed their hands approvingly at such unbelieving laughter. Surface man obliges the Duro, enabling the latter to even influence government, always leading man into the pathways of destruction and defeat. Let me interject here that um, that, that this other dimension also in, and includes the counterpart theory. And uh, as far as the heroes are concerned, it's like Bogo the Possum said, we have met the enemy and they is us. A grave danger threatens the world. With disarray, the Duro can cause whole cities like Chicago to vanish from the surface of the earth. The reason they have not done this sooner is that the surface world supplies them with food for their sustenance and slaves for their pleasure. But more than this, Agarte stands as a threat against them, for it can destroy many of the Darrow caves being equipped with their best of their machines and the, of the outer race. Unfortunately, these machines are too few and far removed from some of the scenes of action. But now you must know fully of Agarte before you will be completely ready to be of service to us. Come. Kent saw a bright path of pure light wandering upward into the sky, and he followed it as though he expected to see the pearly gates of heaven. And lo, the seventh tower. When Kent stepped out on the roof of the sixth tower, he looked at the seventh. He knew that he was about to enter Agarthi itself, for there before him was the ancient entrance, as though in the side of a mountain, and this entrance was shaped like the portal of a great temple, but in simple lines in a style which was vaguely Mayan, minus the carvings. As he entered, he sensed at once a reassuring peacefulness and calm. Here was the quiet sanctuary of wisdom. He walked down the great hall that was like a broad avenue. Beautiful ancient cars rolled past him silently. Kindly-looking people smiled knowingly at him from these cars as they passed. The place 
was filled with such clean atmosphere and the streets were so immaculate that he felt as though he should remove his shoes. But the same guiding force moved him onward. He walked into a great softly lighted cavern, behold and beheld a stone city of eternal beauty. Here was the beauty of simplicity. There was no crowding. Houses were spacious, filled with gardens and pools and fountains, lined with verandas and roomy roof gardens. Avenues were broad and the sidewalks were roomy enough for streams of street traffic. The whole city was built on a plan so as to converge toward a huge building at the further extremity of the cave. This was a tremendous palace, but more massive uh, but more massive than it was ornate. Toward this, tense feet were forced to lead him. In awe, he climbed the seemingly interminable steps of this palace and entered a mighty doorway. There were no guards standing about in traditional fashion, blocking his passage with spears or bayonets, for no weapons or guards seemed seemed to be necessary. Only a kindly-looking people passed in and out of the building, and all of them smiled knowingly at him, and as the others in the cars that he'd seen out on the streets. Soon he found himself entering a great throne room, which was silent and empty, empty except for one person who sat on a great throne on a raised dais. This person was Kent's idea of the ultimate man. He looked something like his, uh, like the fellow whom he had met on the second tower. Who are you, he asked, just as he had asked the other. I'm known as the king of the world, he said, in a calm, resonant, and friendly voice. I have had you brought here so that I might tell you something about Agartha. Please be seated. Kent, not finding a chair, sat down on the steps below the throne. The king of the world smiled at him uh, in a friendly fashion and began his story. Long ago, he said, when the elder race left the earth to seek their home among the stars, there were some left behind who were not as degenerate as they had been judged to be. One or two of these great beings soon anticipated the, de- the, de- the development of the Darrow, which you have witnessed. They were not able to stop the development, but they were able to educate their sons, born of earthly mothers, to run the machines and take care of them. As time passed, these advanced Tarot found this cavern in the Himalayan mountains, and they have remained here ever since. At first, they planned only to seclude themselves from the Darrow and from man as well. But as the ages passed, they saw the terrible work of the Darrow progress until they had to take pity on surface man for his plight. And even in spite of the latter's persistent vanity and stupidity, so in recent times, Agarty has begun to prepare itself. The chief danger is that the Darrow still possess ancient ships of space. The Darrow were afraid of them because the elder race left them behind as defective. Yet, it is known that these ships are at least operative within the immediate effective range of Earth's gravitation. And with such ships, the Darrow could concentrate their weapons of Bolagarte and cause us great damage, even in spite of defense weapons. Or the Darrow could even escape to Mars or Venus and return at a later date and torment terrestrial man. The only thing that these ancient ships cannot do is achieve the sustained high velocities necessary to traverse interstellar space. 
to other solar systems. If they could do that, they should have left this solar system long ago. Now, Agarthi has begun to build a fleet of new ships, which would enable us to deploy our forces, or if things became too difficult to escape ourselves, even to another solar system, if we dared undertake such a dangerous journey. But we of Agarthi would not abandon mankind. We believe that this Earth is still worth living and fighting for. True, the sun is poisonous, but with proper precautions, a man could still live here for more than 300 or 500 years. A utopia can still be made here if we could rid ourselves of the Darrow. Then I myself would take over the world and make it a benevolent utopia, which I know it can, which I know it can be. However, the actions of Nicholas I, who is my rival, my rival in a way, he smiled indulgently, have caused the Darrow to advance their plans at a time when we are as yet unprepared. If they were to attack us now, and they must surely attack us before they attack Nicholas, because we will fight them. Regardless, they would no doubt be able to destroy us. Then would man's civilization be truly ruined by them at will. And with no further protection from Agarthi, the Darrow would thrive mightily in their caves, sucking like leeches at the defenseless mass of disorganized, helpless survivors. Kent was moved to speak. But what can I do to help in all this? Your friend Stephen Germain, replied the other, has requested that you be indoctrinated as he feels that it will make you useful to him and to us as a sort of personal in-the-flesh representative in the United States. And if there be any other reason, they will be explained to you directly by Stephen Germain. At this point, let us say that that concludes the the initiation of the towers. We'll return to our uh, to our summary here. Now, now after this, Jermaine uh, decides to astral project to the ends of the universe to contact the elder gods and to ask them for their help. Now, this is like this is like remote viewing. And, and uh, having having done something similar, I will say that the description and uh, Burns' description of this is very very worth 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 reading. But I'm not going to read it. But but it, I, I do suggest that, that it be read. This is very dangerous, and he does succeed. And the elders send a space armada to Earth, which destroys the Darrow invasion force. However, Nicholas and his aides have an ancient spacecraft with which they attack Agartha. Now, they launch radar-guided atomic missiles at the underground city, but the Elder Gods take control of their craft and direct it out into space with its own missiles orbiting the mother craft. The Russians continue on until they reach the asteroid belt where they are destroyed as their satellites collide with the asteroids. Oh, it's Russian collusion. After this, the eldest of the uh, the eldest of the elders uh, comes to the on worldwide television and gives us a lecture, very much like the one we got a few years later in the day the Earth stood still. And then he tells us that the King of the World will be in charge for the next one thousand years. Of course, the President of the United States and Congress say they'll take this under advisement, and Stephen Germain sends Kent 
to serve as a Gordon's ambassador to the United States. Well, at this point, the story is no longer fun, so Stuart uh, Brian put it to a close. Now, we shall bring uh, this this episode of the Hermetic Hour uh, to a close with a couple of comments. As I uh, have said several times during this broadcast, that the modern, up-to-date concept of the Shaver mystery is that the Darrow Cavern world, and this, of course, would include Agartha, if you want to add that too, I see in another dimension. Now, this is this is pretty obvious if you read Shaver carefully. Yeah, I mean, Shaver's adventures in the caves uh, are all astral projections. You can tell that when uh, as as you read them, and the same thing applies to um, uh, to Saint Eve's. With his and his journey to Agartha, it's an astral projection. So obviously, these realms are, are not in in really in in caverns. Although those caverns may have existed, they may have existed earlier. That's that's possible. But but uh, they are in another dimension. Now we we have shown this in our film Beyond Lemuria. We've actually postulated that the cavern world of the Darrows was precipitated into another dimension by a cosmic event. But if this is the case, you know, if the Shaver's world, uh, Shaver's Darrow world, and, and, and the Gartha exist in this other dimension, this does make it plausible. So with that thought, and as I said, Prometheus II is, as Byrne said, a good introduction of the Shaver mystery, and, and those towers are certainly... Uh, uh, certainly bring forth most of Shaver's concepts. So next week we'll be back, 8 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday night. We'll see you then, and until then, good magic.